Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this is your church. It doesn't belong to us. It doesn't belong to the pastors or the elders or the board members. This is your church. You died for it. You bought it with a price. We praise you for that, God. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for not abandoning us. Even though Jesus is at your right hand, Father, thank you for giving us your word, and thank you for indwelling us with the Holy Spirit. And we pray that by those things, you may equip us as your saints to make disciples, to edify believers through teaching and baptizing. May we make an impact on this world starting in South Pierce County, here in Grand, through your word and by your spirit. We pray that you work this morning. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, amen. Something I've learned about my daughter, Anna, she's now 10 months old, is that she thinks completely in the here and now. Her sense of future is completely non-existent. Even if it's 10 minutes in the future, she doesn't even comprehend that yet. Every thought, every emotion, every sound, every reaction is completely dependent on how she feels in that given second. And if you don't like it, it's kind of like the weather. All you have to do is just wait a few seconds, and what she's thinking and feeling will suddenly change. Do you know anyone who never seemed to grow out of that? They're never able to think with perspective of the future. They're just completely slaves to the moment, to here and now. Whatever happens, whether good and good or bad, it just completely changes their personality. It changes their attitude. It changes their behavior. They may be one way in the morning. Then they're completely a different way in the evening. They may have one good day. Then they have a bad day. They're slaves to the here and now. That can impact all of us. You might be thinking that you know people like that. And if you can't think of anyone like that, I probably have bad news for you. You might be that person. And now you're mad because I've offended you and you're going to leave the church and we'll never see you again because you're slaves to the here and now. Okay, hopefully not, no one here in this room, but you know what I'm saying. Even when it comes to things like saving money or working a job or just decisions that we make, it's hard to make decisions with a perspective to the future. It can be especially hard for Christians in their spiritual life. I wonder if Christians, maybe you here in the room this morning, even though you're not an infant physically, perhaps you act like an infant spiritually, where your walk with the Lord is not done with any thought to the future, but it is completely a slave to how you may be feeling on any given day or any given hour. Do you walk as a Christian? Do you seek to grow as a Christian with an attitude, with a focus, with a perspective on what is going to happen someday ahead? Or do you have just nearsighted vision where your spiritual life is only dictated by what you can see in front of you here on this earth, right here, right now? If that's you this morning, guess what? You came on the perfect Sunday. Because Paul is going to talk about that in Colossians chapter 3, verses 2 to 4. So turn with me to Colossians. I know I always say turn with me to Colossians. We've been doing that every Sunday, right? There's no surprise. That's the beauty of expositional preaching. It's just the same verse right after the other. But in Colossians chapter 3, Paul is going to get specific. 
he's going to give more practicals than any other point up to this moment in the letter where he's going to describe practically how a Christian can fulfill the goal of the letter, which is to walk in a manner worthy of Jesus Christ. Just as you receive Christ Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you should also walk in him. That's what Paul's been leading up to this whole uh, time in his letter to the Colossians. Now, the second half of his letter, he's going to talk about specifics. He's going to practically give a roadmap for how a Christian can actually live a life that is pleasing and worthy of the Lord. And you guys remember that in chapter 3, he starts talking about obedience, talking about what we should do, the, the obedience and worship that we should give to God. Paul starts with perspective. You might remember in verse 1, he says, If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. But in the second verse, it's going to look like he's going to repeat himself, but he's actually going to say something very different. Because read with me in verse 2. He says, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. It sounds like he repeated himself, which in some ways he is. He's trying to emphasize his point. The way that we walk in a manner pleasing of the Lord is by living on earth with a heavenly focus. You guys remember I asked you to memorize that or to put that on a post-it note last week. We should live here on earth with a heavenly focus. He does want to re-emphasize that in verse 2. But he uses a different word in verse 2 compared to verse 1. Look back at those verses. In verse 1, he says, If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. To look for those things. To search for those things. Almost like a repentance of the eyes. The focus is on your location. Where is your gaze turned towards? If you're looking that way, you could then turn your gaze and look a different way. Paul, in last week's sermon, was saying that you need to be looking to Christ that you need to be searching for Christ, you need to be seeking Christ, that should be what you are looking towards. That's the direction that you should be pointed. But in verse 2, Paul uses a different word. This is all leading up to the big idea that I'm going to give you soon, so hang with me. In verse 2, Paul doesn't say, seek the things that are above. Now in verse 2, he expands it by saying, set your mind on the things that are above. Not just turn and look to Christ for a split second and then go back to whatever you're doing, kind of like my infant daughter Anna likes to do. Hey, Anna, over here, she'll turn and look, smile, and then go back to being distracted by something else. Don't do that as a Christian. Don't just seek Christ for a split second. Set your mind. Hone in on it. Lock your gaze on the things that are above. That is what's being described with this word of setting your mind, kind of like looking through binoculars and turning the focus of the binoculars to lock in to focus on what you're studying. In verse 1, seeking Christ is focused on the direction of where you're looking, but here setting your mind is on the duration, the intensity with which you are looking, which is why as Christians, if we are to grow in Christ and live in a way that is pleasing to the it doesn't just mean that we look to Christ occasionally or when it's convenient or for a split second or for a short period at the beginning of our salvation. God is looking for a Christian life that is continually focused 
locked in, gazing on, setting our mind on the things that are above. Last week's perspective was on seeking what is above, specifically in the, in the person of Christ. Today, the focus is going to be more on the future. And that's going to bring us to our big idea for this morning. It's going to be similar to last week's big idea. That the point of this passage is that Paul is calling the Colossians to live on earth with a focus, just like last week's verse, but now not just to live on earth with a focus just on Christ, but to broaden it to live on earth with a focus on the future, a future-focused faith. Not an infant kind of Christianity that's always a slave to the here and now, but you making decisions as a Christian, you worshiping as a Christian, you obeying as a believer of Jesus Christ in the perspective of there's a future that you're waiting for. And for the rest of this morning, Paul in these verses is going to break down specifically what those hopes, what those future focuses should be. So the first point under our big idea, if you get a chance to write that down, is that when we live with a focus on the future that starts with our hope being in heaven, we should live in hope of heaven. When we talk about heaven, we're talking about the world that is to come. Not this world, but the new heaven and the new earth that is someday going to replace this heaven and this earth. That there's a new reality that Jesus is someday going to bring at his second coming. And that this world that we live in is temporary. That new heaven and earth is going to be eternal. We're traveling in this world for a short time. But we will live in the future world forever. Therefore, you should live with a hope of that future reality. This part's really important. Even though the word hope doesn't appear in this verse... The word set your mind is going to be used in other places in Scripture to describe this concept of hope or of faith. And this would be something worth writing down. All Christians should know this, that biblically, when the word hope is used, they're not using it the way that I use it, where I hope that the Washington Commanders will win a football game, which is usually a false hope, but a hope that is grounded in faithful dependence on God's promises. When the Bible uses hope, I want you to always think of the word faith. That's what hope is. Hope is future-focused faith. Hope is living a life in trusting dependence on the promises of God that he has not yet fulfilled. Praise the Lord that we worship a God who has not yet fulfilled all his promises. That should excite us. God hasn't even done his best yet. The best things are yet to come. We come and worship uh, in light of the cross, in light of salvation, which is amazing. But we're still waiting for glorification. We're still waiting for victory. We're still waiting for, for Jesus to come back and bring with him the new heaven and the new earth. There are even better things waiting for us. We should live in hope of that. We should live in hope of that future. Living in hope of that future and living your life as a result of that hope, that's faithful living. I want us right now to look at two examples in Scripture. One example of someone who didn't do this, and another example of people who did do this. And hopefully as a result, we also can learn how uh, we can 
faithfully look to the future and also avoid some of their mistakes. So I want you to turn with me now to Matthew chapter 16. We're going to look at one example. Matthew chapter 16, when I started dating Kimmy, I visited her church and the pastor was preaching through the gospel of Matthew. We eventually got serious and got engaged and the pastor was still preaching through Matthew. We got married and uh, he was going through Matthew and then we moved to become a pastor somewhere else and he was still going through Matthew. I, I figured that at his funeral, uh, the person would say, if Pastor Jim wanted you to know one more thing, he would say, please turn to the gospel of Matthew. Uh, for his sermon. But no, that was a great series. We're going to look back on it. Matthew chapter 16. This is Jesus talking to his disciples. He's further north than any other time in his earthly ministry. He had just left a city called Caesarea Philippi, further north of Jerusalem than he had ever been in his earthly ministry. And Matthew chapter 16, furthest away from Jerusalem, is where Jesus has that famous interaction with Peter where Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, on this rock, not referring to Peter, but referring to what Peter said, he says, on this rock, I will build my church. 2,000 years later, here in Grand Washington, he's still doing that, isn't he? Praise the Lord. But right after, Peter has that interaction with Jesus, saying, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. At that pivotal moment in Jesus' ministry, Jesus literally turns around, Instead of going north, he turns south, and for the rest of the Gospel of Matthew, he is heading back to Jerusalem to be crucified. And when he talks about building his church, he now begins teaching his disciples that the Messiah is going to suffer. That this person who is the son of the living God, guess what? That son of the living God is going to die. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be killed. He's going to be embarrassed. He's going to be stripped naked. He's going to be crucified. He's going to die the most shameful death, not just the most painful death, but the most embarrassing and shameful death. The Son of the living God is going to experience that. And we're going to find in verse 21 that although Peter was fine with Jesus being the Son of the living God, he was not okay with the Son of the living God experiencing what he saw as defeat. Verse 21, it says this, From that time, referring to what we just described in Caesarea Philippi, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Verse 22, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Pretty gutsy, Peter. Saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus, verse 23, turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. If you ever have Roman Catholic friends that say that Jesus called Peter the rock or that Peter's the pope, take them a few verses down and show them the part where just a few minutes later, Jesus calls Peter Satan. And then ask whether or not Peter should be the pope based on those words. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. He went from being the rock, supposedly, from a Roman Catholic perspective on which the church is built. Now Jesus is saying, you're a hindrance to me. For you are not, look at that next phrase, you are not setting your mind. It's the same word in Colossians chapter 3. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. 
Peter had fallen into that very common mistake that we talk about often in churches, where Peter loved the idea of Christ, of Jesus being the Son of the living God, but he was disgusted at the fact that the Son of the living God would experience a shameful, defeating death on the cross. That sounded like defeat. That sounded like shame. That, 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 that sounded like something that was beneath what Peter believed Christ had come to do. But Jesus said, no, his intent for this world during his first coming was for him to suffer and die and be raised on the third day. Peter was having a perspective that was focused on this world. Peter had a perspective that was totally in line of success as the world sees it. He wanted Jesus to be politically successful. He wanted Jesus, from a military perspective, to be successful. He wanted Jesus to be a conqueror. He wanted all these things that were going to be true of Jesus' second coming, but not his first coming. And he even tried to convince Jesus that, hey, this whole cross thing, this whole suffering and dying on the cross, you don't need to do that. Jesus knew, oh, yes, he did. And praise the Lord that Jesus didn't listen to Peter, or we wouldn't be here today. We wouldn't be gathered to worship. And Jesus called Peter a hindrance because Peter's perspective in following Jesus was a perspective that was focused on this world. And Jesus' perspective was by going and preparing a place for us in the future world. When Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you before his crucifixion, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about his death. He's not talking about like he needs 2,000 years to like build an extra guest room on your mansion. He says, I go to prepare a place for you, paving the way for us to enter the kingdom of heaven that is someday going to come down at Jesus' second coming. But Peter didn't have that future perspective. He wasn't focused on that future coming of the kingdom. He was only concerned with Jesus in the here and now and what Jesus could do on this earth. I say this lovingly, church family, but I say this truthfully and seriously. Watch out for versions of Christianity that tell you to put your perspective on this world. Watch out for those versions of Christianity that tell you that this world is the place where Jesus is going to have victory, that this world is the place where Jesus is going to have conquest, that this world is going to be the place where Jesus is king. Remember, he's not on the throne of David right now. He's at the right hand of the Father. In Revelation, when he brings the new heaven and new earth, that's when he's shown being seated on the throne of David. That's the second coming. That's the future focus that we are meant to have. Do not fall for versions of Christianity that say, trust Jesus and you'll be prosperous. Trust Jesus and you'll be healthy. Trust Jesus and you'll be happy. You'll have peace. You won't struggle with mental illness. You won't struggle with emotional hurt. Don't fall for versions of Christianity that take your gaze off of the future and make Christ only something that can help you in the present. Jesus came for your future. He came for your eternity. And he also came the first time because he's preparing the way for him coming back the second time, where he doesn't walk in and ride on a donkey, but he comes in riding a white horse where it says that his robes are splattered with blood because he's already been in battle. And that battle was the battle over sin. And that battle took place on the cross. And that was a battle that Peter didn't want him to take. 
what Jesus knew he had to take for our future. So do not follow Christ merely because you think that he is the answer just for this world. Understand that Jesus is the answer for the future world and make that your priority. Make everything you do in perspective of that new kingdom that he is bringing. Let's now look at a second example. Turn with me to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 to 16. I think Hebrews 11, I could use in almost every sermon, every Sunday. It's so good. Hebrews 11 is just example after example of people of the Bible living by faith. All of them, not just a past-focused faith, but actually a future-focused faith. Different people in different times of biblical history who heard the promises of God as it was progressively revealed over the course of time. Some knew a little, some knew more. But what they all had in common was the promises that God gave them at that time in history They received those promises, they received it by faith, and they lived a life on their earth in that time with a perspective to the future, and it was counted to them as righteousness. Verses 13 through 16 in Hebrews describes Abraham and Isaac and Jacob who had received these promises. Look at how they're described in verse 13. It says, these all, they all died in faith not having received the things promised. Get them. But having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles, not conquerors, not victorious yet, but that on this earth they were merely strangers and exiles. Verse 14, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Jesus is the one who's going to establish his kingdom. He's going to be the one that sets things right. He's going to be the one that brings the city at his second coming. Don't think that it's our job as the church to build his kingdom now. Jesus never commanded his church to build the kingdom. You can look it up. But he did command the church to proclaim the coming kingdom. That just as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they never received all the promised land. God gave them a promise. They gave up their comfortable life. They lived in tents for the rest of their life. And then they died. The only promised land that Abraham ever received was the burial tomb that he was buried in. Yet his faith was so strong, it was so future-focused that he knew that God's promises would be fulfilled even if it was beyond his own lifetime. He believed that God's promises were so strong that they could endure even through death. So they all died in tents. They died as strangers. They died not successful from a world perspective. They died not victorious from a world perspective. But that's okay because they were looking to a city. Even in John 8, Jesus refers to Abraham saying, Abraham waited for my day, and he saw it. And that's referring to when Abraham died and was in the presence of God and saw Jesus, the Son of God, and was in his presence. He had that fulfilled. And someday we will be with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob when Christ comes back the second time and brings his kingdom. In the meantime, let's not try to conquer this world and build a kingdom for Jesus. He never commanded that of us. He doesn't need our help. What he did commission us with is to proclaim the kingdom and to live with a future-focused faith. 
in expectation of that kingdom and to be willing to suffer if needed, but in all things obey in expectation of that future kingdom. Let's look quickly at the last two points. We're going to combine these two for the sake of time, which is probably for the best because the two really are in tandem. The second point is that we are also to live in expectation of a physical resurrection. Just as we know that we have been raised with Christ, we've been crucified with Christ, meaning we're dead to sin, but we've also been raised with Christ, meaning that we are now alive to God. There's just one problem. Our bodies are still decaying. We're getting older. We still have funerals. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, is what 1 Corinthians 15 tells us. We still are going through this process of death, even though we shared in Christ's resurrection on the third day. We're going to talk about that in a second. Because now I also want to give you the third point, which is we're not just to live in expectation of the physical resurrection, but what comes in tandem with that, point three, we need to live in expectation of Christ's return. Because even though we've shared in Christ's resurrection, we have that new life, we should live as new creatures here on this earth. But we must also recognize that eternal life it's not something that we are yet experiencing physically. We don't have that eternal life yet. We are still on this earth decaying. The serpent was lying to Eve in the garden. You shall surely die. Even if you're a Christian, you will die. But that there is an eternal life that is still waiting. There's something that we should be expecting of this resurrection. Let's go back to Colossians chapter 3 where Paul describes this. Colossians 3, verse 3, he says something very interesting in this verse. He says, for you have died, referring to us sharing in Christ's death and resurrection. But then he says, your life is hidden with Christ in God. That word hidden, it's not saying that Jesus was playing hide and seek with our eternal life. It's not that he was concealing it to deceive us. That word hidden means something else. I think even in Luke 13, verse 21, we don't have it on the screen, but in Luke 13, 21, there's a verse about a woman kneading dough and, and working the ingredients into the dough and working the yeast into the dough. And the word that's used is hidden. The idea is that we're embedding something into something else. We're depositing something into something else. So something's being infused. What Paul's saying here is that even though we've shared in Christ's resurrection, He's holding on to that eternal life for us. That, that, that it's deposited, it's embedded in the person of Christ. And that when Christ returns, when Christ appears, that's going to be when he reveals it to us. That, 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 that's going to be when he takes it out of his pocket and says, here you go, I've been holding this for you. This eternal life that you shared with me, this resurrection that you took part with with me at your salvation on the third day, by faith, sharing in that resurrection. Now you get to experience that when Christ comes back, that eternal life, he's, he's holding on to it for you, just like you might hold something for your child in your pocket so they don't lose it. You're keeping it safe for them until the right time. That's what Jesus is doing with our eternal life. And we should live with the perspective that we someday are going to have eternal, eternal physical bodies living in an eternal physical world. And that will happen when Christ appears, verse 4, when Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. That key word being appear. It doesn't say when Christ 
comes, although that would also be true, but it specifically says when Christ appears. This is a reference to 1 Thessalonians. I don't have it on the screen, but it's 1 Thessalonians 4.16, talking about the rapture. Describes Jesus not coming all the way down to earth yet, but appearing in the clouds. All who are dead in Christ will rise first. Then those who are alive in Christ, they will meet Christ in the clouds. I think it's going to be over the Denver airport, because that's where all layovers happen, over the Denver airport. Maybe not. The Bible seems to suggest the Mount of Olives, but okay. And then we will have our eternal life with him when he appears. That's what we should look forward to. Instead of just looking forward to the rapture so that like the bad guys can be punished, or so that, so that we don't have to deal with our bad knee anymore, but thinking of Christ's return is that's going to be when he reveals eternal life for us. That's when our life, which has been deposited and hidden with him, that's going to be when he takes it out of his pocket and says, here I am, this is for you. It's a great thing to look forward to. I have a few more verses for you, just to further this point. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. Even though we are born in bodies that will decay and die, if you are in Christ, there is hope of a future eternal reality. It's sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It's sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit, referring to Jesus. We have that to look forward to. Let's go to the next one, the next slide. John eleven twenty five, 25, where Jesus says that he's the resurrection and the life. Not just nice, cute words to say at a funeral. This is about our future. He is the resurrection and the life. Resurrection and life, it's embedded, it's hidden in him. By faith, if you trust him as your Lord and Savior, when he appears, he will give that to you. He will bring that with, it, with you, him and hand it to you. Let's go to the next verse. Philippians chapter 3, 21. When he will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And then finally, 1 John 3, 2. Look at this one. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. New Testament likes to use that word appeared a lot on this. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Someday we'll have eternal life in a physical body just like Jesus does. We will someday be like him, but the question is, if you believe that you will someday physically be like Jesus eternally, are you living on this earth like Jesus today? Are you living by hopeful faith? that you will someday be like Jesus, not by becoming God, but by becoming eternal in a glorified body similar to his. If you believe that's true of you, you should be like Jesus today in how you treat your spouse, how you treat your kids, how you treat your coworkers, how you treat people on Meridian, even how you think and treat yourself in your private thoughts and your private actions. You should be like Christ. Because what makes God look good It's not Christians going out showing, oh, look how masculine, look how macho, look how conquering, look at how many things we can do for God, look at all these things we're building for God, look at all these things we're creating for God. The biggest impact that the world sees from Christ 
is when Christians live even through suffering on this earth and say, that's okay, I'm waiting for a future city. That's okay. My heart, my flesh may fail, but God is my portion. This world will decay. My body will decay. Cancer will come. Death will come. I'll lose uh, loved ones in my family. I'll lose jobs, but that's okay because God is enough and I have a future. My present may be full of suffering, but that's okay. So was Jesus's on this earth. In this world, I might also have trouble, but that's okay because Jesus has overcome the world and he's coming back to bring a new world. That makes God look good. That has an impact on non-Christians, seeing Christians living with that kind of future-focused faith. Not if you suffer, but when you suffer. Because just like that rich man who was asked to give up all his things and follow Christ, God will never probably ask any of you to give up all your things at once to follow him. He'll do it slowly for the rest of your life. One by one, he'll take things away. And you'll lose those things. But by faith, you'll gain God. And by faith, you'll have a mind that is set on the future. And this world may see you as a loser from a worldly perspective, but from a heavenly perspective, you're not just a conqueror. You're more than a conqueror, is what Romans chapter 8 says. Let's live with that future focus. Let's live with that gaze locked in, set on the future, the hope of heaven, the hope of a future kingdom, the hope of eternal life, a glorified body that all culminates when Jesus returns. And let's not just look at it for a second. Let's fix our eyes on it, is what it says at the beginning of Hebrews 12. Let's set our gaze on it every day, impacting everything that we do. God will be glorified. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we want you to be glorified, not just in our strength, which is little to none, but most of all in our weakness. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 that in his weakness you are shown to be strong, that your grace is sufficient even in the thorns of our flesh. Lord, give us hope. Give us faith. Give us intentionality on this earth to obey you and to worship you with everything that we do. But may it be an intention and a worship that sees the future as our hope, that sees your coming kingdom that you will bring as our future and the home where we will dwell forever. Come quickly, Lord. Pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you, church family. I love you guys. Hope you have a great Sunday. Go in peace.